This is a special Uncommon Sense podcast for 3RRRFM with Amy Mullins. The interview you're about to hear is with Luc-Henrique Gomez. Luc is The Guardian Australia's Social Affairs and Inequality Editor. He joined me for the first instalment of a special federal election policy series on Uncommon Sense. Luke discusses the policies and track record of the major and minor parties in the areas of social policy, including the cashless debit card, JobSeeker and the NDIS. I'm really, really delighted to welcome back onto the program Luke Enrique Gomez. He is a regular on Uncommon Sense, which we are very lucky, particularly because Luke in this world of journalism and media is really a policy specialist in two areas. He is the social affairs and inequality editor for The Guardian, and it's really great that he and his colleagues often get the chance to specialise in certain areas and, um, yeah, we get the benefit of that knowledge. And so I'm going to be joined by Luke now to talk about social policy, welfare policy, the NDIS and other related matters in the context of the election as part of a federal election policy series here on Uncommon Sense in the hope that we can shed some light on the similarities and differences between the major parties and also um, bring in the minor parties and independents where relevant. So I welcome Luke back on to the program. Hey there, Luke. Thank you so much for joining us again. G'day, Amy. It's always great to be on your show. Thank you so much for taking the time. I know it must be particularly busy given we are now, aren't we in week three of the election campaign, halfway nearly? I think yes. I, it must be week three. It's kind of already a bit of a blur. I think I don't know what how you're finding it, mm-hmm. but um, it's a bit of a slog. But it'll be over soon enough, <laughs> I suppose. It is a very long campaign. This is a six-week campaign, but I mean, it feels much longer as we've been saying because really the politicians have been campaigning for weeks to months already. So no wonder the electorate might be getting a bit fatigued as well as the journalists. Yeah, that's right. I mean, basically there was a sort of fake election campaign going on since back end of last year, I think, really, to be honest. And, yeah, it's obviously ramped up, but we've had some public holidays as well um, in the the meantime. So um, I guess it probably hit, hit, um, uh, you know, a crescendo towards the end, but um, it's just been a lot of noise, I think, to be honest. Um, Not so much policy, but uh, maybe that's the nature of campaigns these days. It is a shame. I think it it used to be, even in 2010, I remember writing political columns and lamenting the lack of policy and it was focused on personality at the time. I think it was, you know, we were looking at, you know, the Rudds and the Gillards and, you know, who was more charismatic, who shook Mm. one person's hand more firmly than the other and, you know, all these kind of controversies that would arise that really seemed like a storm in the teacup. But we do seem to, you know, have accelerated that trend and now we find ourselves in 2022 still finding the media bringing up Albanese's supposed gaffe from the first week. So I kind of thought that might have died down by now, but it doesn't seem to be. No, and... um... Yeah, I mean, it's not my media commentary is not my uh, specialty, but I do think that it was a little bit uh, much, to be honest. Um, but that's kind of just how politics is covered, I, I think, mostly. I mean, there are plenty of great political journalists, of course, particularly the Guardian Australia team. Um, but, um, you know, it's often covered as a bit of a horse race, a bit of a game, uh, game show almost, where the 
the two candidates running for prime minister are sort of put up on a stage and the journalists sort of try and knock them down and then report on whether or not that occurred or not for, for mm. days on end, um, which I'm not sure if that really benefits voters and gives, and you know, viewers and readers and gives them the information that they need to make a, a informed choice at the ballot box. Um, but, you know, perhaps me hoping that the coverage could be more like that is a little bit Pollyanna. I don't know. <laughs> well, we're going to try to correct the tide at the moment and uh, switch it back the other way on Uncommon Sense here. Um, <laughs> and I did note that Labor's campaign launch is actually on May 1. It's coming up very soon and people might say, but Amy, we're already in the campaign. Why are we launching it mid-campaign? It seems to be some weird tradition, I guess, that you do it almost in the middle of the campaign and I guess it must spur on the momentum and uh, really this is a chance for both sides to lay out their policy platform in great detail and Albanese is going to be doing that this Sunday, I believe, uh, in WA, just after he gets out of COVID isolation, um, as long as all is going well. Uh, now, Luke, in your particular area that you report on, we have already been seeing a great number of policy announcements from both sides because, of course, the coalition delivered the budget, the March budget. So we got an idea of a lot of their policies from the budget, but there's a, a bit more to come. And then, of course, Labor now having this opportunity to point out in each area exactly what they're going to do. There won't be complete detail, as we've heard, and the costings will come later on in the piece. But I wonder with your particular area that you're reporting on, what are you seeing as having been the focus of the two parties at the moment? And what kind of areas of announcements at, at these policy campaign launches do you think we'll potentially be getting and, you know, what kind of gaps still need to be filled? I think in sort of the terms of stuff that I cover, I would think that there must be something more coming from Labor on um, housing and rents and I've seen some language from the Labor spokespeople about more to come on rent rents but I, I it's hard to know exactly what they that would be um um on other you know i mean a lot of the the labor policy on on sort of welfare and social policy is quite um bare i think decidedly so um but there are some commitments you know scrapping the cashless debit card which is a which is a pretty key commitment for labor and that's obviously been at the center of a sort of political fight over the Labor scare campaign, which perhaps we could get to. Mm. Um, but, yeah, I mean, I think it will be, you know, I don't think there will be too much more on in the areas that I report on, but perhaps something on rents. Um, the government doesn't really have much to say about how it's helping renters. You'll remember the Prime Minister was asked a couple of um, weeks ago, you know, what's the, what are you doing for renters? You've got this policy for um for, you know, first home buyers um, underwriting um, mortgages, but what are you doing for renters? And the Prime Minister sort of said, oh, well, you know, the best thing we can do for renters is to help them buy a home. Um, yep. And then the Prime Minister was asked more recently about what's happening with renters' rents, which are, you know, skyrocketing, particularly in the regions and particular parts of the country. And he sort of referred to existing um, policies that they have, like Commonwealth Rent Assistance, which is paid through the 
um, Centrelink system. It goes to um, you know people on on benefits and, and the pension and things like that. And it's also well, measly, isn't it? It's tiny amounts. Yeah, exactly. It's I think about one hundred and twenty dollars per fortnight as, at a maximum. Um, so that's obviously not covering anybody's rent. Um, but yeah, I think there might be something more from Labor on that. Um, but. The, I don't know exactly how that will um, happen because clearly they've said that in the sort of social security space, job seeker is not something that they're going to touch in the first budget. But I've heard Linda Burney sort of saying, you know, rent assistance is something we need to look at. Um, so I don't know if that's kind of paving the way for something in to do with rent assistance rather than job seeker early on in a Labor government if they were to win in saying all of that. I doubt any of that would be announced. Uh, anything to do with rent assistance will be announced at, at the policy lo- at the election launch anyway. So, um, but yeah, that's kind of the thinking in in that area. I think that's really interesting. I remember last election in 2019 that you know Labor ran fairly clearly on seeking to review at least the job seeker rate because there was consensus across social services, not for profits, charities, the business lobbies you know, pretty much everyone in the community except politicians, that the rate needed to be raised. It is, you know, far below poverty levels at the moment. And, you know, although there was a a kind of slight increase by the coalition, a slight permanent increase, a lot of people have said that the current base rate of $46 a day is just not enough. So there is there a clear difference at least between Labor in 2019 and Labor in 2022 in terms of that particular policy. But I wanted to bring in the high-profile independents, the so-called Teal candidates, Mm. because they did say, should they be elected, and if there was, you know, negotiations, that that particular area raising the rate of JobSeeker would be a key policy on the bargaining table, which I found really interesting. Yeah, I I, I agree. Um, So I interviewed or, um, you know, got comments from... um, Zoe Daniel, um, who's running against Tim Wilson in Goldstein, and Kyla Tink, who's running in North Sydney against Trent Zimmerman, um, and then also um, um, Zali Stegall, who's obviously already in the parliament, Rebecca Sharkey, and uh, Andrew Wilkie. The, those three um, latter people have, I guess, already been on the record as being in favour of an increase to job seeker payment. But I thought Zoe Daniel and Kyla Tink. Kylie Tink's um, comments were interesting. They both backed an increase, and Zoe Daniel, in particular, said that she supported the um, the old, um, I guess, ACOS increase um, demand of I think seventy five dollars a week, which was kind of backed by Deloitte. Um, that sort of pre pandemic um, proposal, and she sort of made a case for it on economic. Uh, grounds, which is kind of the same thing that um, Zali Stegall did as well in in their comments, um, and so I think it sort of shows you that you know clearly you know the the reason why we should be increasing benefits is because people don't have enough money to live and they're living in poverty. But there are you know if you're looking at it more from the political side, there are ways to make the case for um, increasing um, these payments in a sort of um, from an economic point of view as well. And, and so, you know, Zoe Daniel was saying basically that, you know, this would stimulate the economy, it would be good for the economy um, and it makes sense. And at the moment the rate is a barrier to people getting into work. Um, so, you know, these are people going, particularly Zoe Daniel, running in a, um, a very, normally a very safe liberal seat, mm. um, you know, Brighton, 
Um, Goldstein. The feet of Goldstein, suburbs like Brighton, people would normally associate with, um, I guess, fairly, you know, people in favour of fairly conservative economic policies, but she's not afraid to say, well, actually, this is a common sense policy for economic reasons as well as for um, social justice or um, inequity uh, reasons. So, yeah, I agree. I thought those comments um, were very interesting um, and perhaps... Um, shows how those those teal independents have kind of carved out particular areas where the Labor Party perhaps is not um, bold, as bold as um, some voters in those electorates um, or in, in perhaps across the general electorate would, would like. Um, I thought it was quite, quite interesting um, comments, as you say. Yeah. I do recall when I interviewed Jo Dyer, who's an independent running for the seat of Boothby in South Australia, she also had very strong opinions and views on the job seeker rate and was of a similar view that it should be one of the top priorities of any independent, including herself, if she ever um, got up, that she would also have that as her priority uh, in negotiations. So it is very heartening to hear across the board that so many of these teal independents are putting that up publicly for everyone to know that that is a reason to vote for them. One other element to this is, of course, the Greens, because I know many people may vote Green, given that Adam Bant is the member based in Melbourne. So they have been quite popular in the inner city areas. And the Greens have pledged to lift all payments to the Henderson poverty line of $88 a day. What are your thoughts on the Greens and how they've been laying out their welfare policies at the moment? Um, I think the Greens have uh, the the policy is it would certainly make an enormous difference um, to poverty, right? I mean, setting payments to the poverty line is is a great thing. Um, I think there perhaps are potential um, issues around the way that. Um, those payments might interact because, you know, if you set a base rate of $88 a day for all payments, including the age pension, the disability support pension, JobSeeker, and then people are getting other supplementary payments like um, family tax benefit and things like that, and then you also have to consider people who are working and will have their payments tapered. I'm, I'm yet to see how exactly if that will not sort of throw up a couple of issues, to be honest. But, um, I mean, it's a clear pledge and, and the aim of the po- policy, which really, um, you know, is quite expensive, but it will do what it says on the, on the, on the box, which is that it will basically uh, almost, I'd say, eliminate poverty in, in Australia if you were to ensure that everybody on a government payment was over the poverty line. I suppose the other complicating factor is, um, and, and, you know, I'm not, here to say that the Henderson Poverty Line has no value. I think it's a great measure um, and certainly in lieu of having an official poverty line in the country, you know, the federal government doesn't want to adopt one at all. Um, I, I think um, it's useful, but, I mean, it, it is a poverty line that was sort of created in, in the mid-'70s and since then has been indexed um, according to CPI. So, um, I, I mean, I, I think that as a, you know, what they'll be doing partly would just be restoring the coronavirus supplement, you know, setting the payments back to what they were at the during the pandemic, and I think that would be a great thing. But I think that also there, there would be a good idea to have some kind of review um, to determine exactly where the poverty line is, um, you know, in a current context, and then also to ensure that you can make sure that the payments 
all work together properly. I mean, I, I don't really understand what the point is of having um, the different payments if they're all going to be set at the same um, rate and the eligibility criteria would be basically eliminated. Um, but, you know, it's a strong position and I think at least it puts the, you know, it, it reminds people the payments are far too low um, and people are living in poverty and, and it's a political choice to to have that occurring um, and the Greens policy makes that incredibly clear, I think. It's an excellent point about updating the poverty line data and reviewing that. And um, one related policy area that certainly has been at the front of people's minds is the cashless debit card as well as the basics card, which we have discussed in a bit of detail in the past on this show with yourself, Luke. The cashless debit card, for those who don't recall, is a form of income management that quarantines up to 80% of someone's welfare payment onto a card, and it can't be used to withdraw cash, buy alcohol, or be used on gambling products. It also is really limited in the different types of shops it can be used at. It can't just be used anywhere like a normal, you know, debit card would. And it has been exceptionally controversial given that the coalition has said all along that they wanted to widen its scope in terms of its application. It's been increasing in the number of trials they've been doing, and we spoke about trial results last time. But the contestation in the last week or so has been how many payments or payment types would be put onto a cashless debit card under a new coalition government Mm. if they were elected. So I wonder, could you take us through the cashless debit card, uh, in particular who it's currently affecting and who it could affect in realistic terms based on past statements and current statements? So the cashless debit card is is um, running in a, a couple of trial sites around the country. So um, East Kimberley and Goldfields region in WA, Sejuna in um, South Australia, um, the um, Bundaberg and Harvey Bay in um, Queensland, and then it also operates in um, a little tiny trial site in the Cape York uh, and um, in the Northern Territory where it's kind of being... Um, promoted as a replacement to the basics card because the government argues that it's a sort of superior um, sort of platform or something along those lines. Um, Now, it's a little bit complicated because in each of those trial sites there are different um, uh, people who are on different payments that are compulsorily forced onto the card. So in some of the trial sites there would be people on the um, disability support pension, um, for example, that are on um, the card. In other trial sites, it's mostly people on the job seeker payments, um, and there are age um, sort of, you know, there are ages factored in in some of the trial sites, like in, in the one in Queensland, in, in Bundaberg and Harvey Bay. In Cape York, there, the, the card works a little bit differently, and it, it just gets into the weeds a little bit, but there's a, um, a an organisation called the Family Responsibilities Commission, um, which is uh, an Aboriginal-led um, statutory authority in Queensland, which basically determines whether or not people in that small Cape York trial are put onto the card after there's kind of a process where, um, you know, um, community leaders will sort of determine that. And in that 
trial site. There are a handful, um, I think maybe even as many as 20 people who are on the age pension who are on um, the cashless debit card. Um, so combining that fact and the fact that the minister, Anne Rustin, has made some comments in the past where she has talked about a desire to expand the use of the card um, and the Prime Minister as well who said that Labor has essentially running a, um, a campaign, I think it would be fair to say a scare campaign, saying that the government, the coalition government in the future would be putting age pensioners onto the card. Um, the, the government um, basically says that's a, a lie and they've ruled out doing that um, in, you know, no uncertain terms repeatedly. It's one of those ones where, um, you know, we're, we're sort of arguing about something that hasn't happened yet and it's in the future, right? So no one can really say either way what's true and what's not. All we can say is the government says it's not going to do this um, and re repeatedly said that and Labor says, well, you, you can't believe them, they will. Um, I mean, my personal take is that it would be uh, the most baffling political decision of, of many, many uh, decades if the government were to put age pensioners onto the card um, because um, it would be uh, electorally disastrous for them. So I can't see why they would do that. But I would be much more, um, I would be much less if they did the card into more trial sites uh, with a view to, you know, putting more people on it. For example, Pauline Hanson has said that she'd like to have everybody under the age of 35 or 30 on, who are on payments on the cashless debit card. Now, that's the sort of thing that I could imagine would be um, politically not, you know, wouldn't be the same as the age pension situation. And I could imagine that's something that a government in future might want to do, a coalition government. And the, the Prime Minister himself has, has spoken very favourably about the cashless debit card um, and it, the possibility of expanding it in the past. So I guess that's where it's at. Um, but it certainly has been a, a big uh, talking point in the past week in the election campaign. Yeah, and in the Sky News debate that Scott Morrison, leader of the Liberal Party, was answering a question on that particular issue, particularly the cashless debit card, and he was saying, I guess framing it in a way of, well, these people are vulnerable and we're just there to help and support them make the right choices, which really seemed quite paternalistic to me in the way that he was framing it and also a bit condescending. But others have pointed out, particularly from the Indigenous community, that this card at the moment is very much targeted at and affecting Aboriginal Australians. And, you know, if we take out the aged pension question and just look at where else it could be extended uh, and where it's currently being targeted, uh, I think some people would even argue that its current use is not okay. And so therefore we have seen Labor come in and uh, differentiate themselves, haven't we? We have. And um, I suspect that, just a brief aside, I suspect that the sort of age pension campaign thing that the Labor is doing is kind of a um, way to um, not lose political skin over its very clear pledge that it will scrap the cashless debit card and also scrap uh, scrap the basics card, which is a card that was introduced during the intervention um, and only applied to um, Aboriginal people in remote communities. It was since expanded 
and it has been applying to um, people with a range in a range of circumstances who are compulsorily put onto the card across all of the Northern Territory. So one thing that I think is really interesting is that, you know, I think the cashless debit card, there are off the top of my head about 15,000 people, give or take it, in, on the card across the various trial sites. And there are about 25,000 people in the Northern Territory on the basics card, right? And this is something that's been going on for years and years and years. And Aboriginal people have been saying for years and years and years, this is a, you know, this income management system is, as you said, paternalistic, um, it's condescending. Um, and, you know, it, it basically violates a person's human rights to, to, um, to do what they would like with money that the government has determined is they're entitled to, right? So, um, the Labor commitment is not only to scrap the cashless debit card and the way they would do that is the existing trial sites, they would just not continue them basically um, and they say they will replace the card with different, um, you know, what they call wraparound services, things like um, financial counselling and, and, and the like. But they would also scrap the um, basics card um, as a compulsory program in in the Northern Territory and that what that would mean, mean is that, you know, more than 20,000 people who are at the moment getting half their payments onto a basics card, which can only be used in the limited circumstances that you described before, they would have the ability to, to come off the card and just have their payments um, paid into their bank account like anybody else in the country, like uh, people who are listening to this in, in Melbourne right now who might be on the job seeker payment or other payments, you know, those payments are paid into their bank account. Um, and what the Labor commitment means is that in the Northern Territory, those people will be afforded the same right, um, which I think is really significant. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And you've reported that only 2,400 of the people on the basics card are doing so on a voluntary basis. So that's about 22,000 who aren't choosing uh, to do that. And it's a compulsory situation. So I'm really glad there is a differentiation there between the two parties, at least on one particular area that does matter. There's also the NDIS, which yes. is something that we have also talked about in great detail, especially when the independent assessments controversy came up and the government was really seeking to change the way that people were assessed and that assessment would then inform their plans. And we have heard some real concerns and people who are very upset, rightly so, about the government at the moment, or the um, they're now a caretaker government, but the coalition government had been essentially cutting people's NDIS plans by thousands of dollars and a number of people were having to go through a very rigorous um, and gruelling process to challenge that through the tribunals. So I wonder, given that you have been reporting on this in a lot of detail and you've been speaking to people on the NDIS, could you take us through that situation and then we can look at the two parties and where they stand? Uh, sure. So I think the the best maybe the best way to describe this is that in in the, in the NDIS you kind of there's almost been sort of two competing storylines going on at the moment where the the scheme itself the cost of the scheme which is essentially the payments that um, are made to people on it um, to cover their support packages um, the the overall cost has been expanding increasing quite significantly. Um, over some time, um, or at least since maybe, you know, for the past 12 to 18 months, and it's projected to increase in, in 
scope and size significantly in, in the next um, 10 years. But at the same time as that is occurring, you also have a situation where people who are already on the scheme are having their plans um, cut. And there are um, so many cases that have been raised, um, you know, with me on, on in different media outlets, um, MPs, officers being contacted about these, where people have just got had support that's been covered for a year or two years or maybe the entire time they've been in the scheme and then they've had their most recent um, plan review because people's packages are reviewed on a regular basis, usually, you know, after 12 months, um, and they have a review and things that have been paid for by the NDIS have been cut. And the NDIS is saying things like, you know, that that's no longer value for money uh, or that's a parental responsibility and shouldn't be funded by the NDIS. So there's been some sort of internal tightening of the, um, the decisions, the plan decisions that are made that affect people's packages. But in the sort of macro level, you have a situation where the overall plan, uh, overall scheme um, is increasing in, in costs. Uh, and so the government and some of the, uh, I guess, media that are maybe a little bit less supportive of the scope of the scheme are sort of saying, well, the NDIS is costing too much money. Um, and then, but then on the ground, people who are actually on it are saying, well, what are you talking about? Like we're, we're having our plans cut. We're having, you know, vital, maybe it's therapies, maybe it's support worker hours, maybe it's something else. We're having that taken away from us and it's making our life, um, you know, increasingly difficult. So that's kind of the situation. And I think the government knows that the NDIS is popular. Um, and so it doesn't really want to talk about cuts too much at the moment, but I wouldn't be surprised, you know, if, if that's something that they're, they're looking at after the election. That's kind of where it's at. There's kind of a dual storyline. The, the macro issue is kind of, oh, the, the scheme's costing too much money, but that's really because there are more people going onto the scheme and that's for a range of reasons. Basically, the existing state-funded um, services, things like mental health, um, education services for people with disability, things like that, are not getting the funding they need. So everyone thinks, I need to get onto the NDIS. This is the only way I'm going to get the support that, I that my family needs, basically. That's the dynamic. Well, I know that the NDIS only covers 10% of the total population of people in Australia who have a disability, and women and girls only make up 37% of participants. So we have seen groups like Women with Disabilities Australia advocating that uh, the NDIS should actually be expanded to include a range of people who are severely disabled but don't currently fit the very specific and narrow criteria that is involved with the NDIS as well as the disability support pension. Um, so I thought that was quite interesting, uh, as well as the other kind of narrative that Labor is running in opposition to what you were saying there about the coalition and how much mm -hmm. it's costing, which is this argument that, well, Actually, the NDIS is providing great economic stimulus and social advantages as well, uh, including obviously the number of staff that go into the industry, but also then people with a disability are able to participate in society, whether that is going to university or having a job or doing any other thing that makes them fulfilled as a human being. 
if we look at the metrics in terms of the benefits, L Gibbs has done a great thread a few mm. days ago laying out some of the great benefits, including that the NDIS would only have to produce an annual gain of $3,800 per participant to meet a cost-benefit test, which is what uh, the Productivity Commission has said. Uh, we've seen so many different figures running around. I wonder what your response is to that. Do you think that's a true and fair argument around critics of the NDIS? Um, I think it is, it is a really important response because often, um, and as I sort of was pointing out before, the, the in Canberra and in the national media, the NDIS is kind of um, is viewed as... Um, only in terms of how much it's costing the federal government, um, and then there's kind of will be a kind of um, uh, as, as an aside. Yes, we acknowledge that it helps people, um, et cetera, et cetera. But I mean, there's also there are economic benefits to the NDIS, uh, and, you know, and you sort of touched on them. I mean, it means that people who otherwise couldn't work, couldn't study, couldn't participate in the economy are able to do so. And then, as you mentioned, there's also, um, you know, thousands and thousands of people who are employed directly or indirectly through the NDIS because it exists. So I think that the debate needs to cover and include that perspective as well. If we're only going to talk about the cost to the federal government without talking about the um, the benefit, not only from a social perspective, but from an economic perspective, it's really not telling telling the whole story. So I think um, Elle's point is is really salient. And I think, you know, that per capita has had, had research which finds, you know, similarly that there is, um, you know, the, the NDIS um, contributes, I think it's $2 to, $2 to um, gain for everyone, a dollar spent by the government, you know, $2 uh, benefit to the economy. Um, these are all, you know, forecasts and and models and the like, and they're always imprecise, but I think it just tells you that um, it's not as simple as some sort of situation where people with disability are, are merely getting, um, you know, these services and supports um, and there's no flow on to, um, to the rest of the economy. There is. Yeah, and I think it assumes completely wrongly so that people with disability are these kind of passive individuals who aren't mobile, who aren't doing things, who don't want to engage, which is just completely the opposite of the situation. I know it's true that so many people feel hamstrung and frustrated by their disability at times, despite, you know, people saying they also do feel blessed at times because of what they've learnt and the inner reserves they've got. But I think it's really clear that when politicians don't understand or don't know people with a disability and don't have that understanding of their true contributions to society, whether that is economic, but there are many other measures. So, yeah, I think it's quite stark. And I wanted to draw now on Labor because they mm -hmm. have announced an NDIS policy. Bill Shorten, the minister and, you know, one of the key architects of the NDIS with Julia Gillard, he's come out um, and announced a massive overhaul of the NDIS. So could you take us through just like the key areas that Labor believes needs to be changed and, and what your assessment is of them? Uh, sure. So firstly, they've announced a review um, which would look at the scheme's design and sustainability, um, and that will probably address some of the issues that we talked about before. But they've also um, said they're going to increase the number of staff in the agency, um, and that's really important because 
um, you know, in terms of getting the right plans and, and planners having enough time to, to speak with um, the people that they are assessing in order to ensure they've got the right supports. That's really important. They've um, One of the things that um, Bill Shorten and Labor have sort of touched on to try and counter the um, narrative about the NDIS being increasingly expensive is the idea of cracking down on um, so-called cowboy providers and um, and also the consultants' contracts, um, and that could be, um, you know, consultants' contracts for things like internal um, research and evaluation, but also things like, um, you know, external law firms who are contracted to um, contest tribunal uh, matters against people with disability who are, you know, challenging cuts to their plans or or things like that. I think on that, that latter point, probably more detail is required. I'm not sure how much could actually be gained um, financially from that, but in saying that, um, it's certainly, um, in, you know, that the spending on external law firms, it's about $30 million over the past um, financial year so far is quite um, wow. outrageous and that you know to set that up that what that means is um, the NDIA which runs the NDIS um, contracts um, um, lawyers or law firms who will then t manage a case against a person with disability who's saying who's gone to the AAT because they're unhappy that the NDIS has cut their funding or denied them um, uh, support for you know some sort of home modification or things like that and you have a situation where people with disability, sometimes represented by um, community advocacy or, or, or things like that, but often not, are going to the AAT. And um, the, meanwhile, the agencies put um, a private law firm, um, funded a private law firm to contest that matter. So it's it sort of, you know, I think most people would say that that's um, not really something that should be happening on a regular basis, but the fact is that it is. Mm. Um, Bill Shorten has also announced to sort of address that issue, he wants a new um, review system. So just I'll try and explain this quickly, but at the moment the way the system works is that, you know, if you have a decision made by the NDIS, you can ask the NDIS to review it internally and then after that if you're still not satisfied, you go to the uh, Administrative Appeals Tribunal, which is sort of um, a, a tribunal that um, reviews government decisions, whether that's Centrelink, migration, NDIS, things like that. Um, that's a really lengthy process. It's just it's sort of a quasi-court type situation. Um, and there's been a 400% increase in the number of NDIS participants who are going through that process because of things like cuts. So what Bill Shorten wants to do is say, instead of doing that, will have more of a mediation type process that would be run by experts and, and keep those cases out of the AAT, where presumably only the cases that are, um, I guess, much more contested would be um, go to an AAT um, decision or an AAT process. Instead, you'd have um, experts who would be appointed to mediate between the parties and that theoretically should also mean that the NDIA doesn't need to or it doesn't have to uh, contract uh, private uh, law firms to to handle those matters at the AAT. Those are some of the things that um, Labor is proposing. Um, I think certainly more detail is is needed, but um, I think the reviews sort of they they are at least touching on some of the problems that people are having on the, on the ground. Some of those sort of bu bureaucratic red tape type 
frustrations people are having, certainly they are speaking to those problems. And I think the sector in general um, was fairly supportive of what they've put forward. And Luke, looking at the Greens plan, just to kind of make a comparison, they said too that they would like to lift the staffing cap from 3,300 to at least 10,000 staff. Um, They wanted a new ICT system, better support for people who want assistance animals. But importantly, they want to make sure that we scrap compulsory independent assessments altogether. And that's something that the Greens have campaigned very heavily on, including uh, Jordan Steele-John, the senator uh, for the Greens. And I wonder, what are the stances of the major parties on independent assessments? Is there a difference between the Liberal Nationals and the Labor Party? Well, the the government's position so far, so the the independent assessments um, proposal that was put forward last year, um, which basically would mean that people would be assessed by an allied health professional rather than their own um, treating doctor, the government has, um, well, it scrapped that and uh, basically said, we're going back to the drawing board. Um, And so... um, It says that it's not their policy at the moment, but it is also in the process of um, uh, coming up with a new uh, response to what it sees as the issues in in the eligibility and assessments process. So we don't really know what the government will say after the election about what it wants to bring forward because I think we can accept that they do believe that there's a problem. Um, Labor says... uh, and, you know, Labor and the Greens were absolutely uh, adamant that this would be a disaster if that proposal was to to go ahead and, um, you know, they were supported or um, that they, um, you know, that was the position of the um, advocacy um, peaks as well. Um, so they're saying basically independent assessments are a no-go. Let's not have them. We cannot have them. Um, so, but, I mean, I think if Labor is proposing a review into the design and, and the sustainability of the scheme, I imagine that they will have to grapple with some of the same questions that the coalition believes exist too. But because the other thing about the assessments issue is that even though the you know proposal that the government put forward was you know universally panned basically, um, there is one, there is an issue with assessments for some people, which is that it's actually really costly to get um, the um, information or the, um, you know, um, to to, uh, get the uh, evidence, medical evidence from your treating specialist or from other specialists. And many times people spend a lot of time trying to get that um, evidence. Um, And it's quite one of the barriers to to the scheme. So that's an issue which, um, you know, does actually need to be addressed. But I think just the the sector and clearly Labor and the Greens as well think that the independent assessments proposal where everyone would compulsorily need to do one is not the way to do that. So there are issues that need to be grappled with, but um, I think there are there's certainly a difference in philosophy about potentially how to do that, but should be noted that the government at the moment is saying we're not doing independent assessments, those are off the table. Yeah. Gosh, thank you so much for taking us through all of these really key areas, Luke. It's uh, really impressive just how deep your knowledge is on these topics and we're very grateful to you for 
taking us through it. And um, I think that I feel far better informed now in this area and can make a better informed decision. And I hope others listening feel the same way. And um, I wish you all the best for the next three weeks. (laughs) (laughs) And (laughs) And to you, you'll be uh, breaking down the different uh, policies. So uh, I will. Good luck to you too. uh, But uh, I I think today's been really useful. So uh, I hope it has been for the listeners as well. Same. Thank you so much, Luke. I really appreciate it. No worries. I've just been speaking with Luke Enrique Gomez. He is The Guardian Australia's Social Affairs and Inequality Editor, and we've been talking about social policy, welfare policy, and the NDIS, and it's part of a federal election policy series that I decided to start to fill some of the gaps that currently exist in the media coverage of the election. I'm Amy Mullins, and you've been listening to the Uncommon Sense podcast. Uncommon Sense is a radio show broadcast on 3RRR FM in Melbourne every Tuesday between 9am and 12pm.